Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, a podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of AdvaMed, and today we have with us a very special guest with an extraordinary story. Derek Herrera, a veteran severely injured in combat, paralyzed from the chest down during a firefight in Afghanistan. Nevertheless, he went on to get his MBA from UCLA and become an entrepreneur and a medical technology innovator himself, literally starting with a sketch on a napkin. It's a story you won't want to miss. He also leads an organization called MedTech Vets, which helps veterans like himself transition from protecting lives and our freedoms on the battlefield to saving and improving lives in the medical technology field. I know you'll find his courage and his story inspiring. So let's get to it. Derek, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thank you so much. Pleasure's all mine. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while now. We have a mutual friend in common, Mike Minogue. Mike is actually not only a friend, but he's also my boss, as you know. He's the chairman of the AdvaMed board. So he had said to me he was so excited about your leadership of MedTech Vets, and we'll come back to that later. But I know he and many of our other board members are going to look forward to hearing, hearing this podcast with you. So thanks for coming on with us. It's a pleasure to be here and very fortunate to, to have met Everyone that I've met through Mike, who's been an amazing mentor and leader that I've learned so much from. So really excited to share with you guys today. That's great. You know, I always like to start these shows by giving the listener a sense of who the person is behind the big title, right? Most of them are CEOs, as are you. And so let's start there, Derek. Just give us a sense of your background and your upbringing and sort of what brought you to where you are today. Sounds great. So I was born into a military family. My father was an Air Force pilot flying cargo planes. And that was his career. And then both of my grandfathers actually were enlisted in the Air Force for their careers as well. So that was that was my upbringing. That was my family business, for lack of a better term. So I was always exposed to the military from a young age, moved around quite a bit, kind of all over the place, all over the U.S., outside the U.S. as well. I lived in Honduras for a few years when I was younger, up until about the time I started kindergarten. And then spent most of my time and ended up primarily in the East Coast in Delaware before I graduated from high school. And at that point, knew that I wanted to to serve in the military and, and was fortunate enough to attain an appointment to the Naval Academy mm. and went there. And, and that's how I began my, my adult life and my career moving forward from there. And so spent about eight years on active duty as a Marine Infantry and Special Operations Officer until I was injured, unfortunately, in 2012 in Afghanistan. And then pursued a new line of line of work, a new a new passion, which was to try to help create innovations in medical technology that would would help people like myself. It was my path up until now. So tell us what like life was like at the Naval Academy. How did you enjoy that experience? What did you learn from it? I've heard a lot of different views of going to the service academy, but I'd love yours. Yeah, it was an uh, amazing experience. Foundational for me. It set me up for success as an adult. I made some of the best friends that I've ever had the opportunity to to meet, and I think it it changed my life for the better. And so, while you're there, it's not always fun, but looking back on it, we had some great times, great memories, and and really really focused around the people. I think that was the most exciting. But but the time that I was there I was also very focused as well. I entered in 2002 and graduated in 2006, and so 
while I was there, you know, I'd gone there probably for, you know, very superficial reasons. I wanted to be in the military, but I didn't quite understand the true meaning of service and sacrifice and purpose and all these things until I'd gotten there. And then my freshman or my plebe year, freshman year, and then my sophomore year, my youngster year, was able to see combat leadership from people that had just graduated as they went off and conducted combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so that environment and the immediacy and the urgency of everything that was happening around us and the, the profession that we were in and seeking was something that really drove clarity and focus and meaning to the efforts that we were doing. And so while it was fun and you know, there's plenty of shenanigans and different stories I could tell you that was looming and we knew that within a year or two of graduation, we were all going to be in that situation where we'd be leading men and women into battle. And so provide a, a significant amount of clarity and effort and, and focus to anything we did there. Yeah. How long was it for you, Derek, from the time you graduated until you were in Afghanistan in combat situation? So my first deployment as an infantry officer, I was in Iraq in 2008. And so it was about two years before I'd taken a team over there. And then I went again for a second deployment to the Middle East, uh, which was not a combat deployment in 2010, and then was actually engaged in heavy combat in Afghanistan in 2012. And so about every two years, I would go deploy yeah. for about seven months each during that time. That first deployment to Iraq must have been particularly difficult. That was a that was a tough time in Iraq, right? Fortunately, it wasn't. It wasn't too bad for us. It was on the tail end of things. So, so right around 2006, I think during 2006, if I remember serving correctly, that was about the year that a lot of the fighting had peaked and the environment was such that the efforts had, at least where we were, had begun to rebuild the nation and okay. it was very peaceful. And so for us, we were an infantry battalion that was deployed to Ramadi, Iraq, and it was previously one of the most contested regions in, in Iraq, in the Al-Anbar province. But when we were there, we were very fortunate and had almost zero combat. In fact, I think we lost more Marines and sailors in the U.S. due to training accidents and mishaps than we did while we were deployed to Iraq for seven months. And so it was very interesting. It wasn't what I had expected, but I found myself in a new environment and, and really was able to thrive in that environment, which was a different mission. But as Marines, basically what we pride ourselves on is, is adaptability. And so instead of performing a typical infantry mission, which is to close with and destroy the enemy, it means a close combat. We we're actually doing reconstruction efforts and reconstruction work. And so I was sitting down with city leadership, trying to revive economic development and mentoring policemen and having a great time and yeah. being very effective, I felt like, within our unit as a team. That's fascinating and a great service to the country after a very difficult you know, number of years there in Iraq. So then transition to Afghanistan, that's, that's I guess, Derek, when you really faced the, and were involved in combat missions over there, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first real experience in combat. You know, my time during Iraq was, we were in a combat zone, but we weren't engaged in combat yeah. at all for the most part. But literally within, you know, days of arriving in Afghanistan, we were being attacked, you know, multiple times a day and, and conducting operations to interdict and, and counteract enemy efforts to attack us. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend of mine who I grew up with is went to into the Army, 82nd Airborne, right out of high school. And so he had been in the Army for a long time, served in the first Iraq war and then served in Afghanistan on seven or eight tours of duty, I think, and, and did the second Iraq war as well. And he's told me some of the stories about serving in Iraq, but also in Afghanistan and how challenging that was physically, but also mentally, just grinding your way through it and understanding what the mission is. Was that your experience as well? Yeah, 
Yeah, it was culture shock. Yeah, I mean, not really a good way to say it, but might as well have been on another planet, uh, yeah. at least for the area that we were seeking to influence. And so I was part of a special operations program called Village Stability Operations. And it was similar to what we had tried to do in Vietnam, which was to embed small, highly capable special forces teams in local villages to raise a militia and train them to defend themselves with the hopes that they would be able to resist enemy influence when we leave, right? And that would be our exit strategy to create sustainability in the region. For us, where we went in the Helmand province, the conditions were not set for us to succeed in mm. that engagement. And so incredibly challenging circumstances for us to try to try to figure out and problems to solve. And so we were dealing with high rates of illiteracy, rampant drug use, lack of services. There was no running water, no electricity. The base that we were in, we were out living amongst the people and they were farmers in mud huts with no doors, no windows, no electricity, no running water. You know, it was about as primitive as it gets. And so you can imagine trying to teach these people about governance and democracy or even basic economic and finance principles. And it was different. It was challenging. So it was a, it was a very interesting environment for us yeah. to go in and try to accomplish this mission in. Yeah, it sounds like a, a really difficult assignment. And I, I think on behalf of everyone who didn't serve, we thank you and all your colleagues for being willing to do that, right? And take on that challenge. So Derek, it was also in Afghanistan, I, I think it was when you suffered a major injury that kind of changed your life as, right, as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. And so almost two months after we'd arrived, we were conducting it, patrols. And on one of these patrols that I was leading, found myself engaged in enemy firefight. And unfortunately, in the opening moments of, of that battle, was shot and immediately paralyzed from the chest down. And mm -hmm. so we had a small team in a compound in a house that we were, we were staying in and fighting from. We had about 10 Americans and 10 of our Afghan partners and were under heavy enemy fire. And so myself, I'd been, you know, shot through the shoulder or the bullet went into my spine and like I said, immediately paralyzed. The Marine to my left had also been shot through the neck and was unconscious at the time. And so pretty hellacious scenario. And the only reason that we were able to, to survive both myself and the Marine to my left was due to the, the heroism and the bravery of, of the team that we were a part of, both the Afghans and the Americans. And so while taking enemy fire from multiple directions, the other eight Marines and sailors that we had got us down off the roof stabilized us, kept us alive, called in the medical evacuation helicopters while returning fire and, and establishing security, and then got us onto those helicopters to, to get us out of there and save our lives. And so that for me was a real turning point in my life because you know I was no longer able to serve as a Marine Special Operations Officer or a Marine Raider. And the profession that I'd worked for my entire life was now no longer an option for me. And so as I kind of came to grips with that, I had to, to realize that I was going to move forward in a new direction and, and find something else that I could could do and find a new mission, essentially. Yeah. Once they stabilized you, Derek, and got you out of the combat zone, I assume you went to a local hospital there, a military hospital there. And how long were you in the hospital in Afghanistan? And then when did you transition back to the United States for further treatment? I woke up after the helicopter ride in, in a hospital in Afghanistan at uh, Camp Bastion, which was the, the major hospital in the facility in, in Afghanistan, in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. And so I was only there for maybe three or four hours. And then we got on a flight to Landstuhl, Germany, which was the major 
trauma facility for for the Department of Defense there in Germany. Stayed there for about two days, two, three days, and then was transported back to Bethesda, Maryland and, and back to the States. And so, yeah. uh, so it was a few days before I was able to make it back to the U.S. And how long were you at Bethesda in the hospital there? I stayed in Bethesda for almost seven days before I was transferred to a, a VA hospital. And mm -hmm. the reason why we did that was because the DOD has less resources and actually very limited resources when it comes to spinal cord injury, especially, and rehab. And so, for example, a lot of the listeners probably know, but the subspecialty of rehab for clinicians is, is PMR, or physical medicine rehabilitation. And the way the government structures things, the DOD does not have PMR docs. Mm. The VA does. And the reason why is because the DOD is focused on operational readiness and war fighting. And so they do a limited amount of rehabilitation and physical therapy and all these sorts of things, but only for people who are going to get back in the fight. And right. so for people that have spinal cord injury, uh. which is a very permanent and, and lasting neurological injury, or even amputee, a lot of other people, anybody with very severe injuries, the resources are placed under the VA. And so they're the ones that have PMR docs and spinal cord injury clinics and centers of excellence and all those sorts of things. And so I transferred to the Tampa VA down in Florida and spent about six months there before coming back to California and going to work. Yeah, let me ask you kind of a personal question, Derek. It seems like to me, not everyone can go into combat like you did, get injured in a life-threatening way and then a life-altering way and bounce back from that with the resiliency that you have and continue to strive to lead and accomplish and do great things. What is it that allows you to do that when, when maybe others really struggle bouncing back to life after that? Any reflections on that? Yeah, I think if I were to pin down one or maybe two things, two factors that were enabling factors to allow me to, to move forward in a meaningful way, it was the experience that that we had and the people that i was fortunate to be around and so the experience that we had the experience meaning we had just gone through this situation my life was threatened i, I was taken to a, a realm of physical survival i didn't know if i was going to survive that incident but i did and that left me optimistic right also optimistic about the future and so a lot of people that, that go through these experiences i think will describe similar circumstances potentially where you're shocked, you're frightened, you're anxious, and then you're elated, right? You're you're alive, right? And you're back and you have all these opportunities. You have a new lease on life. You realize that you've been given this opportunity to move forward and to do something, right? You're, you're still here, right? And so this is something you should be grateful for. And that experience is something I had in about two months after I was injured. Unfortunately, I got news that some of my my colleagues, another captain and some of the other Marines that, that were in my company that we deployed with and that I knew were killed. And unfortunately, would never come back or never have the opportunities that I had. And so those experiences and the people that I was around made it really easy for me to not feel sorry for myself or to, to complain. And so when I find myself in these situations, it's a complete change in perspective. And I'm able to reframe any sort of self-pity or sorrow or any of those types of feelings, those negative feelings internally, and understand really why I should be elated to be alive and how I can do something. And so that's the experience side. And then the people side, somebody else asked me this recently as well. We were talking about this and, you know, they said, how were you able to, to go through this? What was it like when you were talking to your teammates? And when I was talking to my teammates, they, 
they were in Afghanistan for a total of about seven months long. And I, I had left, you know, I was the team leader. I was in charge. I was the one entrusted to take care of them, to lead them, to, to look out for their welfare for that entire duration. But now I could no longer do that job. Right. And so they're still at risk in the combat zone, conducting these operations and, and fighting to stay alive and accomplish the mission. And so it was a pretty challenging time for me, but but the thing that I, I tried to, to center back on was kind of a more stoic philosophy, which was, what can I control? What can I do? Right. You know, and the only thing I was in control of at that time throughout a lot of instances was my mental state and my frame of reference. And so I could control that whenever I got on a phone call with the guys, right? And talk right. to them on the satellite phone. I could say, I could go one of two ways, right? I could feel sorry for myself and communicate that to them and probably diminish their morale and, and just totally have reverberations and negative effects throughout the team. Or I could be grateful for the opportunities that I have and be optimistic and, and positive and upbeat and leave a favorable impression on the team so that they're not worried about me, right? And they're not worried about this kind of stuff. Because the last thing that that I wanted to do was to be a burden or to have any sort of impact on them, right? They were they had more th- more important things to focus on. Right. And we're really good at compartmentalizing, but at the same time, as a tight knit, very cohesive unit, when someone undergoes this type of trauma, it affects you, right? It's it's not easy to just turn off. That's just some of the insight that I've thought about recently, and and how I move forward to try to continue to to have an imp- a positive impact and, and find a new mission, find something else that that I was passionate about pursuing. Yeah. It's an amazing story of resiliency, Derek. And I, you know, I met you through Mike, but I also met you through LinkedIn and uh, have watched some of the videos that you put up. They're very inspirational. I remember one, it was a pull-up challenge of some type. And you would roll over to a door in your wheelchair, reach up and grab the pull-up bar. I think it was on a, on a door frame. And every day we're doing a certain amount of uh, pull-ups, try to hit a certain mark. And I remember watching that and I I would stay with it and watch it as often as I could. And for me, as someone who doesn't have a spinal cord injury that didn't serve in the military, anytime I was feeling sorry for myself or felt like I was having a tough day, I'll be honest with you, I'd roll back and look at that and go, Scott, stop complaining, right? Get on with life. And, and I imagine I'm one of many, right, around the world, Derek, who have been impacted by your resiliency. And I, I just really admire that and grateful for what you've done there. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh very appreciative of your kind comments, but, uh, you know, I owe everything to the team that helped save my life and, and so many other people and really just take it one day at a time, trying to take advantage of, of every opportunity afforded to me. And if that helps others in similar situations or challenge, then, then great. Because the reality is, is trauma and loss and suffering and, and these types of emotions and these things happen to, to anyone who's human, right? You live long enough, you will experience these sorts of things, whether you're in the military or not. And stories of resilience, I think, can help, right? Because it makes people understand or reframe or have different perspectives on what's happening. So thank you. Well, it's helped me and I appreciate it. Um, you you, uh, you transitioned out of the military and from your injury into the med tech industry. And I I assume I'm I'm guessing to some degree, maybe because that industry impacted your life as you were in the hospital and coming out of it and recovering. Talk about that transition. Why med tech and, and sort of what you're working on now, Derek? Yeah, so I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was really fortunate to 
have a good education. I'd gone back to school to further my education. So I was doing the executive MBA program at UCLA part-time while I was trying to figure things out and had a lot of, a lot of doors that would, would be open to me if I were to choose to pursue them. And so while I was kind of going through this journey at school, trying to figure things out and also recover from and deal with some of the lasting injuries that, that I still have today, I asked myself a pretty simple question, which was, I'm fortunate to be able to do a lot of different things of all these things. I could probably do any one of them decently, but is there some unique purpose or something that only I can do, right? And when I thought about that, the idea that came to my head was, I think that I can create innovations for people like me mm. and create a business around that, create a, a successful and sustainable organization and help myself, but also help so many other people that are in similar situations and the lack of innovation, specifically in spinal cord injury and other areas of rehabilitation and, and other aspects of these types of injuries were things that I was dealing with on a daily basis. And, and so I thought that afforded me unique insight into potential product development opportunities. And then I just finished business school. So I knew a little bit about entrepreneurship and decided to go for it. And so I thought, this is what I can do. I'm obviously as vested in seeing any of these products get to market where they can help people. And if I can do that, in a meaningful way and create sustainability through a profitable organization, it's a win-win across the board. And so that's the general ideas that I came to and the, the path that I wanted to go forward with. And so my new purpose in life was to try to improve life through innovation. And that was the unique advantage that I thought I had was leveraging my own personal experience and turning that into to an asset, not a liability. And so Graduated from UCLA and had an idea for a device for a urological device for men with urinary retention. It was literally just a napkin sketch and have been working over the past six years to bring that device to reality. And that was with a company that's called Eurodev Medical, which used to be called Spinal Singularity. And we've worked through multiple clinical studies and are working with the FDA now to try to try to prepare our submission for clearance of that device. And so that's what I've been up to and, you know, on the path that we're on. Yeah. Talk about that timeline from idea to getting something through the process. A lot of money you have to raise, a lot of people you have to sell on the idea, right? To creating and, and developing that product and getting it to the FDA. How long did it take you and how challenging was that for you? It was and is incredibly challenging. Probably yeah. the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I had a healthy dose of optimism at the time. You know, I was just armed with my my MBA from a great institution and Thought I could just throw some slides together and people just throw money at me, right? With a good idea and a nice, you know, and business plan and everything. And that wasn't the reality, right? And rightfully so, because I really didn't know what I was doing. I had no experience in the industry and only because of people I was fortunate to meet in the network I was fortunate to build through AdvaMed and other organizations like meeting Mike Minogue and, and finding mentors and advisors and people who can help keep me on the path to success, coupled with the desire that I would never quit in this endeavor. Right had we been successful. And so it took forever. We learned a ton. What we're trying to do is highly innovative and novel in the method we're trying to solve this problem. And that's why nobody else has done it before because it's it's really hard, you know, and that's, that's fine because we're going to get it there regardless if it takes six years or seven years or however long it takes, we're going to get it on the market and, and help a lot of people. And so that's been the journey. It's been, it's been a long, tough, arduous path, right? Dealing with, with all aspects of the med tech industry. And, and it's something I've actually 
come to appreciate and enjoy is we all need this innovation. People across the world need innovation in healthcare and med tech and med devices specifically. And so having intelligent, capable, skilled operators who, who know how to do this is a meaningful pursuit. And so, okay. you know, it's kind of like special operations community, I think, because there are so many individual functional areas that have to be fully satisfied and are incredibly complex in order to create a company that succeeds. And so everything from clinical, regulatory, IP, manufacturing, you know, finance, uh, so much stuff, right? Whereas, you know, a lot of other industries don't have those, those types of challenges. So it's a noble pursuit. It's a profession that I found a home in and been incredibly grateful to, to find and excited about, you know, trying to shape the future through innovation in medtech. Great story. I, it, it reminds me, I was reading a speech recently, the JFK speech, when he talked about sending a man to the moon. I've heard the quote before, but it jumped out at me recently when I read it again. He said, we choose to do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And that is essentially what you said, right? Is uh, And I think so many people in the med tech space get into med tech, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And that is what sort of drives us all to make a difference in people's lives. Agree. Yeah. I don't know a single person who's in this industry because it's easy. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, it's impactful, right? And it's and it's necessary. You know, when you are successful in the back end, right? And you can say, this device that I drew five years ago is now helping people. It's in their body. Like we're, you know, right. I've been involved in every aspect of this and now it's real and it's really helping people and they enjoy it. Like, I don't know any other industry that has a type of rewarding sense of purpose and feeling. Yeah. You also have another company, Bright Euro, which you launched recently, right, Derek? Talk about that company, what you're doing there. That's correct. Yeah. So leveraging the experience that I've been able to develop in early stage device development for urology specifically, founded technology at a major institution here in the U.S. that, that we're, we're licensing and working to try to revolutionize diagnostic devices for urologists. And so... The specific initial pursuit that we're seeking is is for urodynamics evaluations, and it's a, a pretty terrible, inconvenient, uncomfortable, inefficient process by which urologists use currently, but it's, it's the best they have to obtain quantitative and objective data about what's happening in the bladder. And for us, the technology that we're licensing is a solid foundation and, and will be hopefully very quick time to market, but basically... Uh, standardizing the method, improving all aspects of, of this evaluation and offering real actionable insight to, to clinicians. And so that's the fundamental premise of the company thus far. And then we also have concepts for other aspects of urological diagnostic capabilities where we can expand. And so couldn't be more excited about this. Very fortunate to have found the opportunity and secured this this license and excited to get it going and, and move forward and bring all the assets we have to bear to help people. Yeah, that's great. Well, in transition to a, another conversation, because your professional work and your previous life in the military have kind of come together, right, in this philanthropic initiative that you're now leading, MedTech Vets. And it's amazing what you all are doing there. And rather than have me tell the story, talk about MedTech Vets and what you're doing, what the future looks like for that organization. MedTech Vets is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was founded by Mike Minogue and, and some of his colleagues uh, almost a decade ago. And it has been 
sponsored and backed by some amazing early sponsors like Advamed. And so very fortunate to have have the backing of industry. But but what we do is engage veterans and teach them skills and build their network so that they can find meaningful employment in the medical device and life science industry. And so we run a very short virtual program. It's about two months long where we're working hand in hand with each one of these veterans to learn about themselves, to learn about the industry, and then to hand walk them in front of hiring managers with with any of our corporate partners and sponsors and any major medical device companies that they're looking for employment to pursue. And so had very good success thus far. We've gone really deep and focused with a handful of individuals. So right now we're serving, you know, roughly 40 veterans a year and have an incredible success with them gaining employment in the med tech and in life science industry. And so it's a really simple proposition and we've been executing very well over the past few years, especially with our new program, the Academy, which is what I was referring to with the two month guided guided program where we, uh, we bring these veterans together and prepare them for employment. And the big gap that's created is because for those of you that may not know, so some of you may know, but the big gap and the, the, the challenge that we hear from so many veterans is this is the first time they've had to really apply for a job. Right. Right. And so when you leave the military, it's pretty scary and you don't have a network, right? You don't have the professional network that someone else has. And so you're older, but entering a new industry and you don't know anybody, it makes it a little more challenging, especially if your skill sets don't, don't perfectly match up or align with what some of the applicant tracking software or what resumes HR professionals are used to seeing. And so we work to try to address that imbalance and expand people's network and give them a head start so that they can find the job and they're, they're as competitive as any other applicants in the industry. Because what we find and what I think Mike will tell you and so many other people that, that have hired veterans in this industry is that there's a period of time where it takes a veteran you know, to, to kind of learn the industry a little bit and just to understand the new environment. But once they do, if you're successful in making that investment and helping them, these veterans will pay off in spades. You know, that investment will enable so much goodness to come out of those, those professionals because of the intangible characteristics, the experience, the leadership, the professionalism, the dedication, the sense of purpose, all, all of these, these intangible qualities and, and experiences that any veteran has had from serving in, in the military. Yeah, let me ask you this question. I've heard Mike talk about this before. But the uniqueness of hiring a vet in your company, if you're a CEO or the head of HR and you're looking to hire people, why recruit a veteran who served as a great potential employee in your company? What makes them so special? I think the above and beyond the intangibles, if I had to say one thing, which is the only reason I've been able to be successful in the industry as well. So speaking from personal experiences, critical thinking and problem solving. Mm. Right. And so. I wasn't an expert in anything around medical technology or medical innovation. And, and frankly, no one in the special operations community is either, right? They're not experts in any one specific area, but what we learn is how to become an expert overnight. And so I may not know about artillery, but if I need to get up to speed on artillery, I know who to ask, what books to read, what publications, you know, how to practice, how to train and, and execute right and deliver results and be able to, to accomplish that mission and so at the end of the day the reason i think it's so valuable and why critical thinking and problem solving is essential is because you can never predict 
100% of the situations that you or your company or your business unit will be confronted with. And so there has to be an investment in, in leaders who are able to rapidly assess new and dynamic problems and, and take action to address those issues and accomplish the mission and deliver results for your organization. And that's that's what you get, I think, with the majority of veterans. And so you may not get that, right, with other folks or, or they may not be as inclined to do that because they don't have the training and life experience that some of the veterans that enter our program do. Yeah, yeah, that's great and uh, very insightful. As we wrap up, let me ask you a couple quick questions to just give folks a little flavor of, of who you are and what motivates you. Sort of a lightning round of sorts uh, here, Derek, as we wrap up. Favorite book or most influential book you've read uh, that others listening might benefit from reading as well? That's a tough one, but I'd have to go back to Sister Service. So Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, uh, his book Extreme Ownership and and the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Those are two, two of my favorites. So yeah, that would be my safer book. Yeah, that's great. Favorite president and why? I'd have to say George W. Bush and primarily because I had the opportunity to meet him and, and was incredibly, I was impressed by yeah. uh, his empathy, his understanding, his intelligence, his intellect. It was really, really fortunate to be able to spend some time with him and his family. He's a great guy. And I would say one of the most misunderstood presidents, at least in my lifetime, right? And people don't understand how smart he is, how quick he is, and, and what a soft heart he has at the end of the day as well. I'm glad that you saw that. He came to one of our MedTech conferences and I had the fortune of working in his administration for four years. And so it was, got to see him in that that role. But when we sat and talked at the MedTech conference, you saw that side of him that most people didn't see. And so that's a great reflection on a good leader. If you could have dinner, uh, Derek, with one person alive today or from the past, either one, who would it be that you haven't met? I would say probably uh, General Smedley Butler. He's a famous Marine Corps general and uh, one of the most decorated Marines in history and had a really interesting experience. Also was politically active and uh, had some really crazy life experience. So would love to, to meet him and chat with him. That's fascinating. And then let me wrap up with this. If there was, what's the most important factor, the one thing you would say as you look back on your, your life and your, your success that has helped you get to where you are today? One success, maybe one failure too that you learned from. Yeah, so the success that I would say initially set me on the right path was I was fortunate to get in the Naval Academy and to, to serve in the military. That really you know, changed my life. It established a set of principles and ideals and, and foundational aspect of my character that, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I learned a ton. I grew up. I became uh, an adult, you know, functioning adult and owe a lot to the military. And then I think one of the failures that, that set me up and I learned a lot from was actually while I was at the Naval Academy, I was very focused and intent on being a special operations or going into special operations community. And so I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, but I had a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the mindset and the humility and the ethos that was required. And so I didn't get selected and it mm. shook, right? It, did, it, right? it changed my entire life. But what it did was, you know, I was able to learn from that experience and learn a lot of humility and go forward and, and pursue a new path and become a Marine and, and Marine Raider eventually, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And so that's one of the, the failures that I've had that I'm grateful for every day. A good friend who's a, become a mentor of mine over the years, former basketball coach and just a great guy, thoughtful, such a thoughtful guy. He said to me, he said it to me repeatedly, 
in the professional context. He said, Scott, failure is your greatest teacher if you'll let it teach you, right? Just great advice. It has always stuck with me for years. And it's not easy to accept, to be honest with you. I mean, we've all had our share of failures. It's hard to learn from them. But when you do, what a difference it makes in your life and your career, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's almost impossible to think of a situation where you wouldn't want to learn from that, right? Or, or I take it back. It's not impossible to think of those situations. It's important to be open and real and emotionally aware, right? To enable that lesson to really teach you and move forward. And so it's not always easy to do that, especially when egos and, and humility right. get in the way. But if you let it, it can be your greatest teacher, like you said. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. Yeah. Well, Derek, thank you for joining us on this podcast. This has been great. And I've learned a lot, as I always do from these, and appreciate your experience, both in the medtech industry and before that. I'll close by saying this. I, I grew up in a blue-collar town in the South. And most of my friends left high school and went to the military. And I chose a different path. And oftentimes I've looked back with a little bit of regret, right, that I didn't go in and serve my country as well, at least for a few years. And as a result of that, I just have so much admiration for those of you who did make that choice and all that you've done to serve our country. Not everyone appreciates it, but I do. And I think I appreciate, appreciate it more now than ever, given what we've been through in the last few years. So grateful for your leadership and all that you've done. And thanks for taking time to visit with us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Scott. Truly appreciate that. And um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that military is not the only way to serve, right? And so there's there's so many other ways that you can help others and, and give back. And, and you're continuing to do that through your leadership of AdvaMed and the medtech industry as a whole. And so thank you for serving in a different way. Yeah. And thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. But before you go, I encourage you to check out the show notes where you'll find a heartwarming video of Derek standing up from his wheelchair using incredible exoskeletal medical technology. And for the first time in front of his two young sons, you'll be inspired by his courage and by the power this industry has to fundamentally change people's lives for the better. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day.